Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for coming along so bright and early. Um, my name is Tim Button. Uh, Tim Crane introduced himself as overall in charge of the joint session yesterday, which means that if you have any annoying questions, I suggest you direct them to him rather than me. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Ian Rumpit and Gary Kemp. Um, Ian Rumpit has taught at Keele, at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, at Oxford, at Birkbeck, and now Birmingham. He's written on truth and on the liar, as in this paper and as in several others. And he's also written lots on philosophical logic, including intuitionism. And he has one paper on philosophy of cricket uh, called Ricky Ponting and the Judges, which is about the Ashes 2009 and also about truth and philosophical logic, of course. <laughs> he has a forthcoming book entitled uh, Boundary Stones of Thought, which I've just found out weighs in at 160,000 words, so it's an impressive boundary stone indeed. Gary Kemp is at Glasgow. He's written also on philosophy of logic, on Quine and Davidson, on Wittgenstein and Frege, but also on Proust and Collingwood. And he has two recent books, Quine versus Davidson, and What is This Thing Called Philosophy of Language? Unfortunately, uh, Gary Kemp is unwell, though, and so is unable to attend this session. Um, and the man I introduced to you today is plainly not Gary Kemp. He doesn't look like Gary Kemp. He doesn't sound like Gary Kemp, and the main qualification that entitles him to replace Gary Kemp is that he's also at the University of Glasgow and writes on <laughs> logic and, and truth and things of that nature. Uh, Alan is, of course, probably best known for his defense of formalism in his recent book, Truth Through Proof, which is quite an astonishing tongue twister if you keep repeatedly saying that. So, ordinarily, of course, as you know, the uh, symposium sessions would consist of... Uh, Ian Rumpet speaking for a bit, and then Gary Kemp speaking for a bit, and then I would chair the question session. We'll have Ian speaking for a little while, and then um, Alan doing his best to impersonate Gary Kemp for a while, and then we'll, uh, I think, have a little bit of a response between the two of them. Um, no one here, of course, can speak on Gary Kemp's behalf, um, but we'll do our best to try to do him justice. Um, so without further ado, um, I'll hand over to Ian Rumpet. Thank you very much. Um, has anybody got a handout for my section of the presentation, good. There should be plenty around. Um, so, um, as, as those of you who've read the paper will know, um, it's a sketch of um, a conception of how one might approach the general topic of truth and meaning, um, and painted with a rather broad brush. And um, one day I ought to fill it in properly by writing a book on these themes. Um, but all I've presented in the volume is a sketch, and, and today I all I can do is give a sketch of a sketch. Uh, so um, uh, um, I, I offer these remarks in that, in that spirit. Um, I can perhaps best introduce the theme um, I want to explore by invoking one of my predecessors as the head of the philosophy department at Birkbeck, um, a man not much remembered outside Birkbeck, called Cyril Jode. Um, he was, you might say, the Anthony Grayling of his time. Um, he was a, a public intellectual much in demand um, by the BBC. And um, he was a regular appearer on a radio later television programme called The Brains Trust, in which uh, a number of public intellectuals would field questions sent in by listeners. And... Um, Often these questions were philosophical, and the philosophical questions would be directed to Professor Jode, um, and he would invariably start his response 
to a question like, um, you know, is free will compatible with determinism, for example, by saying, it all depends what you mean by free will, determinism, etc. Um, and um, uh, now, I, I think what he meant by that is something I certainly don't believe, namely that once one had sorted out what one meant by these terms, the answer to the question was going to be pretty obvious. I certainly don't believe that. But there seems to be an important germ of truth in, in his slogan or catchphrase, namely that the true answer to a question, the correct answer, does crucially depend on what the question means. And indeed, uh, the truth of a statement certainly crucially depends on what the statement means. And indeed, until you've sorted out what the statement means, the question of its truth doesn't really arise. Um, and this suggests, doesn't of course entail, but it suggests that in elucidating these relationships philosophically, uh, we might do better to explicate truth in terms of meaning rather than vice versa, certainly. And the paper develops this idea. As I'll explain, although it seems a fairly obvious way of approaching it, in fact, it hasn't been particularly popular in uh, the philosophical logic of the past century. Uh, more particularly, the version of this idea I want to develop is one that was propounded by a local hero, Ramsey, in his unfinished book on truth, which he wrote in the, or started, did what he did on it in the late 1920s. Um, so I've, I've got a, on the handout, a quotation from that unfinished book, um, where Ramsey says this, um, he says, a belief, Ramsey takes beliefs to be the primary bearers of truth, and belief in his terminology is a particular state of believing of a particular thing at a particular time. A belief, he says, is true if it's a belief that P and P. In Mr. Russell's symbolism, B is true if and only if, and this is a definition, there exists a P such that B is a belief that P and P. Similarly, B is false if and only if there exists a P such that B is a belief that P and it's not the case that P. Um, and I really want to uh, focus, I focus largely on, on the paper on these, on these formulae of Ramsey as a starting point. Uh, now, the first question that arises about this formula is what it means, and in particular, how we're to understand this existential quantifier into sentence position. Um, I think we certainly can't, for these purposes, understand it as a substitutional quantifier, because at least the normal explanation of a substitutional quantifier talks in terms of the truth of a relevant substitution instance. And since it's supposed to be part of a definition of truth, we'd be in a fairly tight and unproductive circle. Um, so um, what I propose is to understand the quantifier in terms that were suggested by Arthur Pryor in his posthumous, also posthumously published masterpiece, Objects of Thought. Uh, what I propose is we should read There Exists P in the style, there's a way things might be said or thought to be such that. And the attendant variables being read as things are that way or things are thus. Um, so things here is just a, a dummy noun. I'm, I'm talking about things in general. And similarly, the corresponding universal quantifier is to be read however things may be said or thought to be, and so forth. Um, so the ways in question here are, as I conceive them, completely open-ended. Um, they're not 
tied to what I might express in any particular language or indeed what any particular thinker or group of thinkers might be able to apprehend. There are just ways in which things might, by somebody, be thought to be. Um, well, if we do read Ramsey's formula in that way, um, then Ramsey's definition of truth for beliefs and falsity for beliefs um, turns out to be a semi-formal version of a thesis that Peter Strawson propounded as I quote, something uncontroversial and fairly general about truth. So a belief, Strawson said, is true if and only if things are as one who holds that belief thereby believes them to be. And similarly, one who makes a statement or assertion makes a true statement if and only if things are as in making that statement he states them to be. Um, so notice the adverbial phrases in those um, formulations of Strawson, which are being uh, captured in the, in the semi-formal system by uh, the sentential quantifier read a la prior. Um, so I'm suggesting we have a nice, on this reading, we have a nice confluence between um, Ramsey's uh, semi-formal formulation and Strawson's elegant English prose. Um, but both of, them, both of them are on Joad's side, as it were, in that I think it's fairly clear that both of them are taking the notion of content of a belief or the notion of the content of the statement as understood um, in the explication of truth. Um, so uh, Ramsey's definition takes as understood the notion of a belief being a belief that P, and similarly Strawson takes as understood the notion of a statement saying that things all thus and so. Or, or, uh, um, so uh, content comes first, truth comes later. Now, there's a very large problem that any theory of this general shape has to face. Um, and the problem is that of saying, in general terms, what it is for a belief or a statement to have the content that it has. Um, and the point about this way of organising the, the explanation is that a certain natural answer to that question is, is precluded. Um, so Michael Dummett pointed this out in his great paper, Truth, you know, so, so many decades ago. Um, a truth conditional account of content is, I think, precluded on this approach. Um, one really can't at the same time say, <clears throat> one, what it is for a belief to be true is for things to be, as one who holds that belief thereby believes them to be, and two, what it is for a belief to be, a belief that things are thus and so, is for the belief to be true, if and only if things are indeed thus and so. We're in such a tight explanatory circle there that, that no illumination is really provided. Um, and um, I think that Ramsey certainly saw that, and um, I follow him in broad terms in wanting to replace two with a pragmatist account of the content of beliefs and indeed ultimately statements as well. So to a first approximation, and this is only approximate, uh, what it is for a belief to be a belief that P is for it to be a disposition to act as if P in a case, in a circumstance wherein matters whether P. Um, now I've, I have lots of views about how that should be further elaborated, but, but um, that's the, the sort of answer I would give to this large problem that faces any view of the kind I want to defend. Um, now, that large problem, though, is one I've written about, but it's not the main theme of this paper. Um, rather, in this paper, I want to address um, a number of more or less logical problems that 
face uh, the general approach to the relationship between truth and content that I've been sketching. Um, and, um, uh, well, some of them I think are only apparent problems, but some of them are, I think, quite deep and, and genuine difficulties. Uh, so so um, the, the paper is a sort of more or less cohesive list of, um, of difficulties that might confront the, the sort of approach that I want to adopt. Um, I'm not, I don't have time to go into detail about all of the uh, difficulties or apparent difficulties. No doubt some of them can come up again in discussion. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll skip over some of them quite quickly and, and, and to give myself um, enough time to address what I think will take to be the most substantive problems that, that face uh, the theory of, of, this, of this general shape. Uh, so the first problem I address in the paper is one that Peter Geach raised for Ramsey's position some, some 30 years ago. He thought that there's bound to be a shift in meaning between its freestanding occurrence of a sentence, a declarative sentence, and its occurrence following uh, an expression like B is a belief that, or S is a statement that. Um, and he thought that this shift in meaning rendered illegitimate the quantified form that Ramsey's uh, definition invokes, namely exists a P such that B is a belief that P and P. Um, I, I mean, I, I think my, myself that even on a Fragian view of the attitudes, which of course Geach adopted, there need be no shift in meaning here. I think the, uh, the problem is really of one for the semantic theorists to give rich enough semantic values to the sentential variables to accommodate um, the, uh, the sort of quantification that Ramsey's uh, uh, definition requires. Uh, um, but uh, I, I, I won't go into that um, in this presentation, though we can certainly go into it in questions if people are interested in my reply to Geach. A much more influential, I think, worry about this approach um, is one you find certainly suggested in, in many of Davidson's famous writings. Um, uh, Davidson, in his paper, Truth and Meaning, stigmatized intentional notions such as believes that, says that, means that, as obscure and he thought we ought to theorize about meaning where we could in an extensional first-order language. He got this prejudice in favor of such languages from Quine, of course. Um, and he, of course, thought that one could construct a theory of meaning cast in such a language in a way that it could, in his phrase, serve... Um, sorry, a theory of truth cast in such a language in such a way that it could serve as a theory of meaning um, for the relevant group of speakers. Um, Partly, uh, well, I have a number of replies to that. First of all, um, just to remind you that the, I think the pro project didn't work. Uh, John Foster's objections never, never really dealt with adequately by Davidson. That's my conviction, though it may not be Gary Kemp's conviction. Um, but more deeply, I think, um, Parche Davidson, indeed Parche Quine, um, I don't think that believes and says that are so obscure that they can't be treated as primitives, acceptable primitives in a theory that tries to account for knowledge of language. Uh, so what such a theory has to account for is knowledge of what statements say. <clears throat> for example, I know that the German statement entweder es regnet oder es schneit says that it's either raining or snowing. Uh, we certainly want to account for that in terms of my uh, understanding what the components say. Uh, 
But we can, I think, do that quite elegantly if we work in the sort of uh, intentional language uh, forced with um, priori and quantifiers. Um, for one thing I know is, is this, that however maybe things may be said or thought to be, that quantifier again, if one German statement, A, says that things are one way, and another German statement, B, says that things are another way, then the disjunction, entweder A oder B, says that things are either one way or the other way. And that's just E on the handout written out using Pryor's uh, quantifiers. Um, and since I also know that um, as Regnet says that it's raining and that S. Schneid says that it's snowing, my knowledge of that general statement, E on the handout, can account or help to account compositionally for my knowledge of the particular meaning of the disjunctive statement Entfeder es regnet oder es schneit. So I think that if we use these quantifiers in a, in a, a reasonable way, we can cast uh, semantic theories that account compositionally for our understanding of complex statements um, in, a, um, in an unabashedly intentionalistic um, theory, which is just as rigorous um, formally as the first-order theories that Quine and Davidson prefer, but which does not run into all the difficulties that Foster identified for the project of getting, one, of getting a true theory to serve as a theory of meaning. The third difficulty takes us much more closely to the heart of the matter. Um, Ramsey, as you've noticed, actually offers a definition of truth. You know, DF in his formula means this is a definition. Um, but we learned from our intermediate logic courses that Tarski had proved that truth is indefinable. Um, so what's going on here? Did Tarski refute Ramsey's whole approach? Well, I don't think so. Um, again, I go into this in more detail in the paper, but written by the paper, this is the essence of it. Um, Tarski's proof assumes that an adequate account of truth is going to conform to what Tarski calls Convention T, Criterium W in the German version of the paper. And this criterion presupposes that every well-formed sentence in the relevant language is going to have truth conditions. Well, on the Ramsian view, only a statement that says something is so much as a candidate to have truth conditions. So the presupposition holds only if every sentence in the language does indeed say something. And without that assumption, Tarski's proof breaks down. It's, it's a premise that is needed for the argument. Um, however, um, the assumption is, is certainly very dubious for the sentence that the proof turns on. Um, that, if you remember, was a liar sentence, a sentence L, which says L is not true or L does not express a truth. And uh, given Ramsey's account of truth, um, we don't have a paradox here. We simply have a proof that L does not say anything at all, that it, it doesn't have a content, doesn't say anything, um, and consequently doesn't have truth conditions, so it simply falls outside the ambit of, of, uh, of Convention T. Um, so on, on this view, um, it isn't that we prove that truth is indefinable, rather we use uh, certain assumptions about the definition of truth in order to show um, that certain sentences do not, in certain contexts, succeed in saying anything. Um, and uh, that seems to me to be uh, a perfectly respectable position to hold. But this does take us to the heart of the difficulty. I think this is really where the genuine difficulties arise. Um, because um, 
the real problem, I think, that confronts, the real logical problem that confronts any theory of this general shape is that the apparatus of quantification into sentence position, together with these intentional notions of believing that or saying that, appear to generate paradoxes. Um, and in particular, it seems that we can prove that certain utterances or inscriptions say nothing and then go on to prove what they say. Um, and this is clearly uncomfortable. Um, so um, let me give an example to bring out what I take to be the central difficulty here. Um, it's very closely modeled on things that, on example of Pryor, so I don't think that Pryor himself quite saw the full force of the, of the problem. So let's suppose that Epimenides utters the sentence, Epimenides utters no sentence or closed formula, which, when standardly construed, expresses something that's the case. So more exactly, let's suppose he utters the formula lambda, which is not there exists P, delta P, and P, in an interpreted formal language in which there exists P as the priori and existential quantifier, and delta P means Epimenides utters a sentence or formula which, when standardly construed, says that P or expresses the thought that P. Let's also suppose that this sentence lambda is the only sentence or formula that Epimenides utters in the relevant period. We can't assume, as the case of the simple liar illustrates, we can't assume that these words succeed in expressing a thought. But it seems as though we can assume that any thought that they might express um, will, when standardly construed, be equivalent to not the case there exists a P such as delta P and P. So we have uh, the premise um, laid out on the uh, displayed line on page three of the handout, which says, says in symbols just what I've said in words. And we can then set out an argument for the conclusion that Epimenides utters no sentence or closed formula which, when standardly construed, succeeds in expressing anything at all. That conclusion may be formalized as it's not the case there exists an R such that delta R, and it can be derived um, by deriving a contradiction from the contrary hypothesis. And I've um, laid out the derivation on the handout in steps 1 to 20. Um, well, so what that derivation appears to do is to vindicate the claim that in the unfavorable circumstances described, Epimenides' words are standardly construed, express no thought. The problem, though, is that the same logical rules that are used in reaching that conclusion, which is a, in some ways a welcome conclusion, may also be applied to show further that things are, as Epimenides' words stand, are standardly construed, say them to be, thereby ensnaring us in a revenge paradox. For, as it seems, the derivation can be extended to reach line 25 on the handout, uh, where line 25 just is the very formula lambda. Uh, so it seems that the, uh, the principles of argumentation that show that Epimenides' words say nothing may be extended to establish the truth of what they say, and that seems to be a very uncomfortable uh, position to find oneself in. Uh, I want to make two initial observations about this derivation. Uh, first of all, um, those of you who attend to these things may notice that all the rules employed in it are acceptable to an intuitionist. Um, I think this is of some significance because uh, Dummett, of course, suggested that intuitionistic logic is the one to use 
when reasoning about what he called indefinitely extensible totalities. And uh, the totality of the ways things might be said or thought to be is certainly a paradigm of what Dummett had in mind when he talked about indefinitely extensible totalities or concepts. Um, but even if we restrict ourselves to intuitionistic logic, um, we don't get out of the difficulty here. Um, the uh, uh, restricting oneself to that logic, though it may be a good thing to do or not, doesn't actually enable one to escape from the present, the present paradox. Uh, it's also noteworthy that the problematic derivation I've laid out doesn't use Ramsey's definitions of truth or falsity. Indeed, it doesn't use any definitions of truth or falsity. It just uses the concepts of saying, which is implicit in delta, and this apparatus of, of quantification into sentential position. Um, so tweaking the definition of truth is not going to help um, here. And I, I think that this, again, brings out something of, of some importance. Um, it would be too paradoxical to say that the liar paradox wasn't really a paradox about truth. Um, but I think that this point does bring out something that I think is implicit in the great medieval discussions of the paradox, but has rather been lost sight of by modern discussions, namely that the liar is as much a paradox about expression, about what we can say, as it is directly a problem about, about, about truth. And, and I think that this, um, this, this version of it um, shows that really quite starkly. Okay, so where should one go? So, so we, we seem to have a, an apparatus which gives one an attractive account of truth, an attractive approach to semantic theory, um, and which is formally consistent as far as the definition of truth is concerned, but, but where the, um, the use of this apparatus generates these problematical results. Um, what's, where, where, to go, where to go here? Um, were Davidson and Quine right after all to be suspicious of all this intentional stuff? Um, uh, well, there, of course, there are lots of, way, lots of ways out to explore, and I'll just conclude by mentioning two of them. One that I um, certainly think is part of the story, but doesn't, I think, get to the heart of this version of the paradox, and then um, the version that I particularly want to uh, explore myself. Um, I think the most popular line to take about this sort of problem case at the moment is, is to points to the change of context between lines 20 and lines 25. Uh, so at line 20, line 20, we have the result that uh, this utterance doesn't say anything. Um, and at line 25, we have a proof of what it says. But the context has changed, somebody might say. There's no formal contradiction uh, between lines 20 and 25 because the the relevant range of ways things might be said or thought to be might have expanded between line 20 and line 25. Um, uh, well, I absolutely don't want to deny that in many, many versions or forms of the liar paradox, context is indeed crucial. But I worry whether contextual variation of this kind quite get cuts to the heart of this particular version of it. Um, why is that? Well, Suppose we revise the interpretation of delta in such a way that delta P now means Epimenides utters a sentence or formula which Rumfit will interpret at 9.31 on the 12th of July 2014 as expressing the thought that P. Um, and suppose that I duly reach 
line 25 at 9.31 today. Then we are in a bit of a mess um, because at line 25 of the derivation, I'm affirming the very same formula uh, that is said to say nothing as I then interpret it. That's to say I'm led in the course of a derivation to affirm a formula that as I now interpret it says nothing. Um, and this seems to me to be a difficulty. And I don't quite see how adverting to contextual factors can get around, can get around that, that problem by itself. So instead, I recommend dealing with this um, version of the liar um, by a different strategy, namely to revise the logical rules to, in such a way as to take account of the possibility that well-formed formulae may, in some contexts of utterance, fail to say anything at all. So there's a sense in which there's no, logic, no revision to the logic on a certain conception of what the logic is. So one thing you might take the logic to be is just general laws about ways things might be said or thought to be. And since, on this view, the relevant utterance does not succeed in saying that things are a given way, um, it, it's just outside the scope of logic conceived in that way. But we also need, as well as those general laws about ways things might be said or thought to be, we also need rules that can be applied in particular formalized, formalized languages to uh, move from, from uh, to, to legitimate steps in a derivation. And it's logic in that latter sense that I think we may need to tweak in order to avoid difficulty here. Um, the tweak I suggest involves working in a system of signed formulae rather than simply unsigned formulae, where plus A um, signifies that A is accepted as true, um, whereas minus A signifies that A is rejected as untrue. Um, and in such a system, we revise the rule of reductio, um, so that having derived contradictory um, conclusions from a set of hypotheses, um, X together with plus A, uh, we simply infer minus A on the hypotheses X um, rather than plus the negation of A. Um, uh, and this, I think, is a natural way to go when you think about the, what, what's going on in the case of the liar. That's to say, we, we certainly want to reject it as untrue, um, but we're going to get ensnared in paradox again if we accept its negation. Um, so we should, we should reject it as untrue, but simply do that. Um, reject as untrue, but not uh, accept it, not accept its, its negation. Uh, this line with the liar, I should say, is not new. Um, you can find, actually, Echoes, pre-echoes of it in medieval writings on the liar, but you, you also find it very clearly articulated by Terry Parsons in a paper 30, some 30 years ago. Um, but Parsons does not um, offer a particular formal system which enables you to escape contradiction. I'm, I'm um, putting my head on the block in proposing uh, such, a set of, such a set of rules. Uh, if we adopt these rules, then what we get to at line 20 is... Um, we reject the supposition that the relevance uh, utterance of lambda says anything, um, but we're only able to, we only reject lambda um, at line 25. We don't um, reach uh, the assertion of, 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 of the negation at line, at line 25. So, so that, I, I think, is entirely consistent with the, with the thought that um, Epimenides' utterance of it's not the case there exists a P such as delta P and P fails to express the thought as standardly, as standardly construed. Um, 
Now, um, Gary Kemp in his reply has various skeptical things to say about this, and no doubt we'll go into that in discussion. Um, um, I'll just make one prophylactic remark at this point before stopping, um, namely, rejecting lambda as untrue has to be distinguished on this view from saying that it is untrue, or indeed saying anything at all about it in the affirmative sense of say. One is simply rejecting as untrue. One isn't putting forward any propositional content as something to be um, accepted. Um, but with that, uh, with that point, I've um, run out of time, so let me, let me stop there. Okay, my mic top just for me. Uh, Gary wanted me to uh, just put some some of the formula up on the uh, on the screen. So let me see if I can do that. Sorry, that's the wrong date. That, that's a different hyper-intensive in, uh, occasion, round about the river Boyne. Uh, so that's the actual date there. Uh, I just want to see if I can work this from here. Yeah. Um, I'm very pleased to be, as it were, speaking on Gary's behalf. It's a it's a great pity he couldn't. He couldn't make it. Um, as I said to Gary, um, getting me to speak is a bit like a, a guy with no left leg getting a guy with no right leg to, to ride the tandem. Uh, so I'll apologise if I'm at some point splutter a little bit and have to uh, and cough a little bit, but I should be able to manage this okay. It's also a great pleasure to be engaging this, engaging this with my former pupil, Ian here, who uh, absolutely nothing... Ian knows it, did he learn from me, but he did learn a few extra expletives he'd, uh, he'd never realized existed before, uh, a long time ago <laughs> in Valeo. Okay, so Gary um, just wishes me to read the second and the third sections of his talk uh, and leave out for considerations of time. So I'm just going to start from section two and work my way through it and stick up uh, some of the formula. Truth and quantification. Romford wish wishes to explore the idea that truth is ascribed to beliefs Following Ramsey's later definition given in his manuscript on truth, let's see if we can get it up. Oh, there we have it there. Um, P is true if and only if there's some P such that P is a belief that P and P. Assume an implicit wide scope universal quantifier governing B. Romford writes particular states of belief are not mere logical constructs, apparent reference to which dissolves under analysis. On the contrary, there are elements in the causal order. However, as Romford recognizes, even if one restricts the concept of truth to elements of the causal order, one can't see the motivation for tying truth to a particular variety of force, to beliefs as opposed to, say, wishes. One might therefore have expected that he would replace the concept of belief in Ramsey's formulation with some general idea from the philosophy of mind, such as mental representation. But in fact, he switches the focus to speech acts. But these are still elements of the causal order, which is, I take it, the Ramsian kernel that Rumford wishes to run with. I want to digress a little over Ramsey's definition of six. We've got that six, yeah. Uh, as has been explained by Grover, we need to convict Ramsey of We need not convict Ramsey of equivocation between use and mention. But, so I suggest, we can convict him of duplication. It can't be that Ramsey intended the propositional variables ranging over sentences. Focusing on the right-hand side of Ramsey's definition, that would be nonsense. Uh, formula seven. Yeah. Uh, there's some S such that B is a belief that S and S, an instance of which would be B is a belief that, quote, snow is white, and, quote, snow is white. Connectives require sentences, not singular terms, in particular, not quotation mark names of, of sentences. 
Treating P as a schematic letter also runs into a problem. Uh, and formula 9, P is a belief that S and S. It works for instances. P is a belief that snow is white and snow is white. But 9 itself is not a sentence and is not assertable. It is only a schematic template for generating sentences, sentences which ascribe truth to individual sentences. One might propose that a schema, um, that a schema uh, dot, 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 S is really shorthand for every instance of dot, dot, S is true. That per perhaps works for, say, the mathematical induction schema, but in the case of a purported definition or analysis of a truth itself, it would be flatly circular. The idea that we should resist the objection to nine and allow that uninterpreted schemata should play an essential role in reasoning has its adherence, but it's not romped its way. For Grover, the way to read Ramsey involves her pro-sentences and accompanying sentential quantifiers. Pro-sentences are like pronouns in their anaphoric use, except that they operate on content, not reference. Roughly, a pronoun occupies a position that a proper name or description can sensibly occupy. Anaphoric pronouns borrow their significance from proper names <coughs> or descriptions elsewhere in the linguistic context. A borrowing is successful only if the linked name or description denotes an object. Anaphoric prosentence, an anaphoric prosentence occupies a position that sentences can sensibly occupy. They borrow their significance from sentences elsewhere in the linguistic context. Prosentences can be extended to combine with sentential quantifiers to, to say, uh, oh, sorry, I'm falling behind. Sorry, we've got to here. So um, uh, here's the dawn. Uh, say Davidson said something that Quine said. That's Quine, age 75. He aged very rapidly, just uh, from 75 on. Uh, to say Davidson denied some things that Quine said is to say there's some P such that Davidson denied that P and Quine said that P. I emphasize that we are understanding pro-sentences as hyper-intentional. That means that if we have an occurrence of a pro-sentence, dot, 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 s, dot, dot, uh, then we can infer uh, the same thing, but with s replaced by s star, only if s and s star mean the same. The meaning of a sentence can be represented as a substitution class of sentences which are hypertensionally equivalent to it, which can be equated with the proposition expressed by the sentence at a given context. The propositions then may be unthinkable in fact, but not expressible in principle. And this suggests that Ramsey's definition is redundant. The propositional <coughs> quantifier as he uses it already does the relevant work of truth in itself for it allows gen for generalization at the sentential level. Um, if we wanted to know uh, about the truth of a proposition, then we'd need ex an explicit truth predicate, perhaps uh, with uh, this schema. Uh, for all P, that P is true if and only if P. This is analogous to Quine's truth is disquotation. The explicit use of a truth predicate just enables one to say things that are equivalent to a certain sentence, but with the sentence nominalized. And the same would be true of other truth vehicles, including beliefs. We could incorporate explicit truth ascription to beliefs <coughs> as follows. Uh, so number 12, for all X and P, X is a belief, uh, and the content of X is that P. If that's the case, then X is true if and only if that P is true. In natural language, a truth predicate has other functions which don't obviously demand that it be uh, construed explicitly as a predicate of propositions or beliefs, uh, which suggests that it, it is true as itself a pro-sentence. Partly it's a grammatical cue. It is true as the form of a sentence, thus is equiform with the items for which it substitutes, just as pronouns share the form of the substituents. So has, so has, that's the case, that's so and so on. Partly there are reasons of convenience. That's true is often a lot shorter than reproducing the whole speech. Partly to its effect, certain pragmatic link, link, linkages, as when Groucho, oh, I think I'm falling behind, 
as when, um, where did 13 and 14, oh, I need to go back to that, I think. As when Groucho says, he's a fool, uh, and Chico says, no, he's no. Uh, that's my version of Gary's um, sort of uh, fool, he's a not. <laughs> um, okay, so where am I here now, yeah. So, um, thereby implicating that he credits Chico as well as making the assertion. Partly it's so that matters of tense and modality be conveyed. If it had been true then, dot, 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 that's not to, known to be true, blah, 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 that's a necessary truth and so on. And partly it's, it's that examples such as the theory of relativity is true do not contain it is true in its entirety, nor descriptions of truth to sentences or propositions as in Snow is White is true, or the proposition that Snow is White is true. They're missing the word it. So, um, uh, summarizing this passage, it is true is not a pro sentence to be explained wholly frastically as lacking syntactic structure. Rather, as Brandom says, it's a pro-sentence forming operator, taking us from a referring expression to an expression that is the same content as the item uh, denoted by the referring expression. Even the mildest of realists want to be able to say that some truths have never been believed or thought, and that some will never be believed or thought. I think what Romford intends is better captured by propositions in a certain imminent rather than transcendent sense. Some propositions, it seems, are not even believable or even thinkable, at least not for beings of our cognitive stripe, simply because they're transparently self-refuting or they're too long or complex. But this does not imply that they are creatures of utter darkness. They are not, in principle, any more mysterious than the relation of synonymy. Uh, although I should add in parenthesis that Gary, being a pretty Quinean, thinks that the re relation of synonymy uh, is itself rather mysterious. But anyway, propositions aren't more, more so. So that's Gary's section two. Uh, and I think the last part is just to say that uh, um, uh, it is true. Um, um, there are various grammatical reasons uh, why we use other formulations, but he's wanting to go with something quite like Grover's pro-sentential account. Then the, the, the final section, am I doing? Okay, uh, is on paradox, where he, he turns to uh, Ian's treatment of paradox. Um, <coughs> that truth is a feature of speech acts requires that the idea of context of utterance be factored in. Rumpf, it does so as follows. So I think I've got Gary out of order here. Uh, yeah, so we're at 13. Um, for all the enthralls C, uh, A is true at context C, if and only if there's some proposition such that uh, it's said, uh, A says P in that context and P. It's a definition of the binary predicate true, revealing a sentential quantifier that is absent from the definiendum. Say means the potential or actual utterance or inscription of a sentence. Uh, so the picture is much as I have just described, pertaining not merely to actual linguistic acts, but more ideally to possible linguistic acts. And again, if we're going to have propositions, contents, thinkables, whatever, and we've already got the idea of the pro-sentence along with sentential or propositional quantifiers, then surely these are the proper objects of true, not sentences out of context. Furthermore, for propositions, we can assume, at least for our purposes, that all untrue ones are false. So I don't see the need for um, so I don't see the need for this. Stick with eleven. Then we can have separately um, uh, that one uh, for all A and C. Phi A C. If that's the case, then there's some P such that A says P at C, uh, where phi is some condition in sentences and context that ensures that the ex sentence expresses a proposition at that context. I think that this is the meat of Rumpet's idea expressed at 13. It's not a definition, it's a substantive principle relating context of utterance to the expression of content. This connects with a worry concerning the application of Rumpet's picture to paradoxical or pathological examples expressed in natural language. 
Uh, consider uh, some ordinary examples seen in Grover's Way. Two gentlemen are mistaken about the linguistic context they're in. Each is under the misapprehension that the other refers independently of these uses of anaphoric pronouns. Uh, and so, uh, ah, that's where that should have come in. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, Groucho says he's a fool. Uh, Chico says he's not. <coughs> sorry, I've got that out of order. Groucho mistakenly thinks Chico refers to something and likewise Chico Groucho. We have a vicious circle of presupposition and anaphoric look. Compare uh, what, you, what you're about to say is true, and then Chico replies, that's a true. There is no paradox, but still, whereas in the prior case it's an ungrounded circle of reference, in this case it's an ungrounded circle of sentential meaning. Groucho and Chico thus do not utter sentences that express propositions that fail of truth or falsity, rather they utter sentences that fail to express prop propositions. Um, now consider the truth teller. I think I've got that. Uh, yep. Okay, so the truth teller, uh, this is true. Um, we want, according to the line we're following, to say that this does not express a proposition. But consider a more articulate version. Um, this either fails to express a proposition or is not true. Reasoning naively, assuming the law of non-contradiction, and that the expression of a proposition is necessary for both truth and falsity, 17 can't be true. <coughs> Else it would express a true proposition in which case it would not be true. It can't be not true, because then it would be true, for that is precisely what it says. But it can't fail to express a proposition either, for then it would be true. Hence, it would express a proposition. So it seems on its face. Back now to Rumford. He introduces a distinction between ordinary negation, um, corner quote, uh, and, uh, um, corner negation sorry, and a notion of false, or does not express a proposition symbolized by um, hyphen, stroke. He writes down, and by right, he, he, he writes, they have this, I think. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, he introduces a distinction between ordinary negation and a notion of false. Good, yeah, got that. Um, he writes, by writing down um, stroke A, one simply expresses one rejection of sentence A is untrue, an act one will wish to perform when A fails to say anything. I do not suppose that uh, stroke A expresses any propositional content when A says nothing. Uh, and a negatively signed formula, stroke A is correct if and only if A is untrue. Uh, <coughs> Uh, but according to 13, each thing represented by A is a mere sentence. It's thus incapable of expressing a proposition or acquiring a truth value absent a context of utterance. Um, I think that's American for except uh, in the case of a context of utterance. All sentences, qua sentences, are untrue. Um, the only way to make sense of this is to suppose that A stands in for a sentence plus a context of utterance. Thus, ignoring the requisite formulation of 13, the act of writing down stroke A as a new context. And now we can ask, what is the crucial distinction between performing the speech act of rejecting A as untrue and expressing the proposition that A is untrue? I think this is a bone of contention that uh, Ian was alluding to towards the end here, what Gary says here. It seems that one's performing the speech act of rejecting A as untrue is enough to express a proposition. Surely to say of some object that it does not express a proposition is itself to express a proposition. Yet Romford appears to deny this when saying, I do not suppose that stroke A expresses any propositional content when A does not. We might even erect a Rumpet-specific revenge paradox. Um, that's it here. Uh, 18, this speech act is not correct. Neither the verdict of correct nor the verdict of not correct seems consistent. Even if what precisely it means to, uh, even if what precisely it means to say is somewhat up in the air in a non-formal context. Neither the verdict of correct nor the verdict of non-correct seems consistent, even if what precisely it means to say is somewhat up in the air in a non-formal context. 
I suggest that we can recognize the shifting of context in line with Rumpet's idea, but do it, as it were, prior to logic. Um, it's necessary but not sufficient for sentences like 18 to express a proposition or to acquire a truth value that a context of utterance be specified. Suppose at a certain time Groucho verbalizes 18. Groucho thereby fails to perform successfully a speech act, but his utterance does not say so. <coughs> it says nothing. Yet subsequently, each time one says of Groucho's utterance that it's incorrect, does not express a proposition, one performs another, utter an another utterance, another speech act which does express a proposition, which is correct, indeed true. Likewise, with 16 and 17, um, I don't know what happened to 17, so, um, if we pay attention to shifts in context in something like this way, then we do not have to give the appearance of recognizing correct sentential speech acts which do not express propositional content. Um, it's not sufficient for logic with a capital L that an adequate syntactic machine be specified. Classically speaking, and confining the remark, confining the remark for simplicity to axiomatic systems, what is wanted is a system such that each line in an interpreted proof has a truth value relative to context and expresses the content of a possible judgment. Then its well-formed formulas are meaningful or express propositions relative to <coughs> interpretation in a context is built in. There is no reason that the ideal must be compromised by the introduction of a, uh, of a truth predicate. Returning to Rompit's ideas then, something like 14, um, which is how far back do I have to go for 14? Um, something like 14 uh, ought perhaps to act as a gatekeeper to logic. As Rompit recognizes responding to the lie in terms of pragmatic uh, of pragmatics in terms of the shifting of context has been a line, has been a line well traveled in the literature. Perhaps there are problems with it, but it has the advantage of constituting an attempt to address directly the strength and liar par paradox without departing from the ideal of classical logic. And that's Gary's piece. <laughs> I think, I think uh, <clears throat> Ian's going to just offer some quick responses, is that, is that right? Yes, yes right. Um, thank you very much. Um, so, there's a lot to say about the points that Gary raises, and, and, but I will be brief, because, largely because he's not here. Um, I'll just take up three or four of them. <coughs> um, he, he's right to say there's an issue about the scope of truth um, that arises on the sort of view that I'm defending, which I didn't address in, in this paper. Um, so one way of putting it is, is, is this, that um, on the sort of view that Ramsey's definition, uh, on the sort of view that Ramsey offers, um, you'd expect the application of the notion of truth to be perhaps wider than it is. You know, after all, um, I can wish that it's now raining on my vegetable patch in London, and let's suppose that it is indeed now raining on my vegetable patch in London. So I'm wishing that P and P. Do, do we want to say that wishes are true? Well, you know, some of us don't. Some of us want to say that wishes gratified in a case like that or fulfilled. Uh, but at least, there's at least some resistance to the idea that wishes are the sort of things that can be said to be true. Um, now, I don't know whether that's just a, a relatively superficial fact about the way we tend to use true in, in contemporary English. Um, but I think that what... <coughs> What is going to be need to be brought in here in a full story is um, the distinction between um, uh, 
a case of a belief and a wish. Um, and I, I think one has to go into territory of direction of fit here. If, if there is a, a principled resistance to the idea that wishes are true, it's because we don't think the wishes have to fit the world. Rather, well, we change the world to fit our wishes. Whereas with beliefs, um, we do think that they uh, ought to fit the world. Um, and I, I, exactly how to capture this is, is a very interesting and delicate question. I take it in the, in the theory of belief. Um, but uh, uh, I, I think that this question of the scope of the theory, although interesting and deep, is um, somewhat orthogonal to the, the question of how one defines uh, truth um, for the cases to which we centrally apply it. Um, as for um, Gary's defense of the pro-sentential theory um, as opposed to the Ramsian uh, or Priorian de development, I should say, of Ramsey's ideas. Um, th there are lots of delicate issues here. Um, uh, the, clearly, the two theories are very much in the same family. Um, but they, the logical details are, are, are different. And um, I think the business, of, I think the crucial question is, if you like, where one is going to bring in the notion of synonymy into the story. Um, if you look at the particular version of the presidential theory that Gary adopts, um, he brings it in before one explicates the notion of truth. So, so um, the, the crucial line is that um, is true is a pro-sentence forming operator taking us from a referring expression to an expression that has the same content as the item denoted by the referring expression. Um, I'm not saying one can't do it that way, but um, there are problems doing it that way. Um, one problem is, going to, is, is this, that if you do it that way, um, then you're going to have to you're going to be dealing with lots of non-denoting that phrases or that clauses in the cases where we have failure of expression. Um, so if you take seriously, as I think we all do, the idea that some of these um, utterances may fail to express thoughts, um, then in doing it this way, one's going to have to have conventions for handling um, the, the, the that P expressions um, where, 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 where there's no thought um, denoted. And um, I don't say it can't be done, but, but I think one would find it was actually quite messy to do it um, in, the, uh, in the sort of way that, that's um, suggested here. So that's why I prefer to operate with a, um, a, a two-place truth predicate of, of sentences relativized to a context, um, because that's, uh, that leaves it open uh, whether a given sentence in the context does indeed succeed in expressing, expressing a thought. Um, but but uh, that's, that seems to me to be um, part of what's at stake. Um, as for um, his suggestion that I, I can't be enough of a realist, um, I absolutely can allow that some truths have never been believed or thought, and that some will never be believed or thought. Um, the... Um, what I don't allow is that one can make sense of the idea of a truth which is completely beyond anything that anybody could um, make sense of conceiving as being a way thing might be. But I'm, I'm happy to. Um, uh, I'm happy with that. Um, and, I mean, I, I can't make much sense. I don't. We have any use for the con conception of truth, which is um, simply beyond beyond what's thinkable, even in principle. Um, as for the paradoxes. Um, I do want to demur here. 
um, and, uh, um, and Gary says it seems that once performing the speech act of rejecting A is untrue is enough to express a proposition. I, I just want to deny that. Um, it's, um, you know, when, when Mary rejects John's advances, she isn't saying anything. Um, she's not saying, I'm rejecting them. She's not saying they are to be rejected. She's just rejecting. Um, and it's uh, the same with propositions, as it were, in the philosophical rather than the ordinary sense. Um, that uh, when, uh, when one's rejecting A as untrue, I accept, I accept, by the way, that A has to be understood as relative to context here. He's absolutely right about that, um, and I, I should be more explicit. But when one's rejecting A in a particular context as untrue, I want to say that's all one's doing. Um, you're not thereby saying that it's untrue. You're just rejecting it as untrue. And of course we're going to get back into the mire if we, ha if we understand rejecting A as untrue as saying that it's untrue. But I, th I think that it's a different matter. Um, so that's, that's all I want to say on that, on that score. <coughs> okay, well, uh, I don't propose to um, respond on behalf of Gary. Uh, either by adopting an American accent, accent or, or in any other way. But I thought I'd make a couple of comments just on Ian's paper, if that's okay, just to sort of abuse my position to get the first couple of que questions in, um, as it were. Um, so let me see if I can just get... Uh, so it's only two or three points, if I can manage to get the other PowerPoint up. All right, yeah, okay. So um, i get this to work. So Ian writes... Uh, <laughs> Uh, consider Caesar was murdered, but it was not necessary that Caesar was murdered. Not, as, not only is this statement readily intelligible, it's true. And here we have Caesar, or as he's known, Brazilian Julio Cesar. And here's archive footage of the actual moment uh, when, when Brutus Miller uh, murdered him. Okay, right, so slightly more seriously, here's my uh, philosophical point. Uh, Ian writes, it doesn't follow from this difference, however, that there is any equivocation, any shift in meaning between the two occurrences of what was, was murdered. Nor does it follow that it's illicit to symbolize our statement in the form, P, and it's not necessarily the case at P. So Ian's given a kind of analogy between propositional attitude context and modal context. So I only want to make a, um, a fairly obvious point here. Uh, that is to say, a confirmed extensionalist is not going to be impressed by I'm not going to be moved by that analogy because a confirmed extensionist, it seems to me, will also reject the idea uh, that that's the correct logical form to assign to... Well, this doesn't work very well. That. That's the correct logical form to assign to the, to the, to the claim about, um, about Caesar and murder. For example, uh, a confirmed extensionist might think the sentence... Give a kind of contextualist account of modality. Might think the sentence is something like this. Caesar's was murdered and this thing here is analytic. If you're a quinine, you wouldn't be very keen on analytic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just display the sentence. So paratactic theories, which Ian, in fact, has written on, they would be one, perhaps, not the best example of that. Mm. So that's just a kind of minor point, namely, as it were, in the dialectic of the debate, yeah. somebody wouldn't say, well, if it's okay, you say it's okay to interpret modal sentences having this logical form, and therefore we can also interpret the Ramsey sentences that way, but somebody else might say, I don't think modal sentences have that logical form at all because Caesar were, was murdered as not a semantic constituent. Of the, of, the, of the sentence that's displayed, something like that. Yeah. So that's one point. Mm. Another one that occurred to me, this is kind of to get us, in to uh, get us riding away again in the concept of horse, horse perhaps, but um, Ian writes, they are not objects because, uh, this is when he's talking about 
Ramsey's, sorry, Pryor's way things are. They are not objects because, uh, quote, the way things are thought to be when someone thinks that running rain was four years old is not a genu <coughs> genuine singular term or eigennamer. Um, so I want to say, well, it is grammatically. Um, so what makes it non-genuine? Um, we've got to have some kind of account here and perhaps we'll get into concept horse type worries. Mm. Um, I don't want to go through, <laughs> we'll be here. I don't want to go through uh, Ian's proof. I've just lemonized it. Um, yeah, I can't get this thing to work. I've just lemonized it, right? Um, there's a lot wrong with lemons where you're doing logic, but making it clear what the assumptions are at each stage on the left is a good idea, I think, particularly if you're interested in uh, weaker logics and classical logic. And all I'm really wanting to say here, Ian, is intuitionist logic is not, the weak, is not all that weak. Uh, so people who are seriously thinking about mucking about with logic to handle the paradoxes, yeah. and in a sense you are as well, yeah. um, might go much further. So, for instance, a substructuralist will make assumptions be sequences of sentences yes. rather than sets. I wouldn't go that way myself, but they might do that. And then yeah. Yeah. there's questions as to whether you can contract or, or fuse repeated assumptions. And so you might end up not even getting the proof of this yes. year, but yeah. there might be lots of assumptions yeah. still in it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another way you could go where, where, um, um, to preserve the idea um, that meaning's fundamental and truth secondary, to preserve deflationism, but avoid the paradoxes, and that's to go much more radical than intuitionistic yeah. logic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the final point, sorry, um, but here's a kind of flip side of this, rather than, rather than maybe go very non-classical, a different kind of response or uh, objection to what you're saying is along these lines, you say, so this is Ian, we would also get into trouble if we applied our rules to everything a Cretan should say, says should be rejected as untrue. I think we just have to concede that problems would arise if the entire semantic machinery of the present paper were to be presented, projected into the object language. The, li the limitations in some projection mean, as in Tripti's theory, that the ghost of the task hierarchy is still with us. But the ghost is far less inhibiting than the hierarchy proper. The rules proposed, Ian's <coughs> signed formula rules, enable us to do a great deal of semantic theorizing within our system. Um, so this is a kind of common response uh, to the Kripkean views, I might also want to make to yours, namely, if the very substantial ghost is not to be exercised, why not just stick with Tarski hierarchicalism? It's pretty straightforward, and we can do a lot of semantic theorizing about the object language. We can't do theorizing about the language of the semantic theory itself, um, but the same as far as I can see is true in your account. So in other words, um, if you're going to have the ghost of the uh, meta language back in there, why not just stick with classical logic and simple Tarski hi hi hierarchicalism? Uh, and that's, mm, yeah. that's mine. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat>